Okay, here we go. So we're drawing this series to a close. This is uh, message seven in our seven-part series on the family, and this is going to be a little bit less of a sermon preached, a little bit more of just some things I, I, I really that are on my heart that I want to share with you because um, we're going to talk about uh, brokenness as it relates uh, to the family. And it's so easy to be discouraged, I think, for, for some here who you know, basically have a, a good marriage and a good family, a series like this is just reinforcement and encouragement. And okay, I learned something that is going to help us a little bit. But whenever you broach the subject of family, it also um, you know, brings up some wounds for some people and, and, and some who are in really tough situations and, and have a lot of brokenness in, your li- in their life. I mean, this, a series like this just kind of raises a lot of stuff that makes that a little bit harder. We're talking about, you know, God's plan for your home to be awesome. And there's just a lot of people here who are going, you know what, I don't think it's ever going to be awesome. I don't think it's ever going to get to that place. You have a real sense that, that God's plan is actually out of reach for you. And we shouldn't be naive about the kind of brokenness that can exist in people's lives, the kind of brokenness that doesn't actually get fixed on this side of eternity. But simply needs to be, and I need to hear this, simply needs to be managed by leaning hard on the Lord and what he says to us about all of these things. And, and from that, we de- derive our, our eternal hope. And that's the key word in this message, is to have this hope that Jesus wants for us. And so various passages in front of us again today. Got a Q&A loaded up at the end. We've been collecting some questions from you along the way. And Pastor Roger, again, is going to be up here to help me with all of that. But here's, here's what we're going after today. There is hope for your family, even when it's really very badly broken. Okay? There is hope for your family. There's hope for your marriage even when it's really very badly broken. And the reason why I can say that is because, we're going to look at these four things. The first one is this. Jesus came for the bruised reeds. Jesus came from the bruised reeds. And, and if you follow the entirety of the passage, we're going to look at it in a moment. He came for the bruised reeds and the faintly burning wicks or the smoldering wicks. And if you have your Bibles there and you want to turn to Matthew chapter 12, And again, we're going to move around a little bit, and I'm going to put uh, verses up on the screen as well. But in Matthew chapter 12, Matthew is actually quoting um, Isaiah chapter 42, and he's talking about my servant. And in the latter part of Isaiah, there's actually a series of prophecies called the servant songs, the servant songs. And they're prophetic words that when you read them, you, you know, Jewish people will read them at the time of Isaiah and would say, The servant is Israel, and these prophecies are about the nation and what the nation should be fulfilling in the world. But then as we read them more deeply and we saw the Messiah come, we realized that the servant songs were actually about Christ. They were about the Messiah and pointing to the Savior. And then beyond that, when you read the servant songs, you realize that because we're supposed to be like Jesus, the servant songs are actually also about us and fulfilled in the church and in, 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 in those of us who are believers. And so you have these special songs. They're talking about the Savior. They point to Jesus. And among other things that are said in these servant songs, it's said of him that, and this is what Matthew's quoting in, in Matthew 12, verse 20. Look at verse 20. A bruised reed, he, Jesus, a bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. So the idea of a reed, I have a couple of metaphors here. The idea of a reed, think about a riverbank. Think about these reeds growing up along the riverbank. And they stand tall and they stand strong and they stand unbroken unless an animal charges through or a person tries to get down to the riverbank or maybe the wind blows it over or maybe waves could knock the reeds over and they get bruised and bent and could be broken off completely. And, and that kind of vulnerable, it looks strong at one time and now it's bent over now... But Jesus has come as the Savior with such gentleness toward us that he's not going to break off that bruised reed. The second metaphor speaks of this this smoldering wick, this faintly burning wick. It's like a fire. It's It's almost ready to go out. And Jesus is going to make sure that wick doesn't go out. And he's going to fan that back into flame. He's going to care for that little faintly burning wick, that smoldering fire. It says, until he brings justice to victory. Whatever heartache, whatever, whatever pain you're experiencing, whatever brokenness you're ha- you're, you have in your life, 
what needs to be applied to that is the justice of God, and in the justice of God, everything is, is made right. Whatever defeats you've experienced, what we're, what we're aiming for is the victory that Christ gives us in himself. And so Jesus came, what this verse really means is that Jesus came for the hurting, for the broken, for the weak, for the vulnerable, for the marginalized. He came for the hurting. He came for those who are, um, who, who are gripped by addictions, who are laid aside by lifelong infirmities, who are desperate, who are grieving, who are wandering, who are lost. And he came for those, as it relates to this series, he came for those who are in difficult, hopeless even, what you would perceive to be hopeless family situations and marriages. The coming of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, becoming human, the life that he lived, the, the teaching that he spoke, the, the, the trials that he faced, the temptation to sin that he faced while not sinning. And in all of that, the example and model that he provided for us, together with, with the sorrows that came from him being falsely accused and, and beaten and scorned and shame, shame heaped upon him, carrying the, the cross to Calvary and allowing himself, because he could have summoned the angels, allowing himself to be pinned to the cross, nailed to the cross, and hoisted aloft to die a painful and cruel death for us. And having died to be buried, and on the third day to be resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit to new life so that he could impart that life to us. And all of that, listen, all of that, in order to deliver hope to marriages and to families who are really very badly broken. The bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks. To you I say, the gospel of Jesus Christ is your only hope. The good news that Jesus came to deliver is, is your hope today. And we need to latch on to that. And so that's, that's the first one. There's hope for your family, even when it's really very badly broken because Jesus came for the bruised reeds. And secondly, there's hope because your brokenness, you might be thinking this, your brokenness is not too broken. Now, you, you might think that you're beyond redemption. You might think that you're beyond the reach of God's blessings. You might think that you've been beaten down so many times that God is simply not there for you because he can't be, because you're too messed up. You don't know the carnage of my past. You don't know the bad decisions I've made. You don't know everything that's happened to me. But if that's you, I would just say respectfully and kindly and lovingly that uh, you'd be wrong in thinking that you're too far gone or too broken. And as I was thinking about uh, this, this very point, the first story that came to mind from the scriptures is, is in John chapter 4. We have an extremely broken woman having a conversation with Jesus. Jesus and this woman actually meet up at a well in, in the middle of the day. And she's, I think it would be fair to say that she's fairly messed up relationally. Indications are, in fact, from the scripture that she was so messed up relationally that she felt ostracized and an outsider in her own village. And Jesus picks up on that, and he's, he's speaking with her, and here's a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman, which was a no-no at two different levels. He's, he's, he's crossing over kind of social convention to have this conversation with her. And as a result of the conversation, he reveals to her, he says to her, you've been married five times. That's fairly messed up. Everybody agree with that? You've been married five times and number six, who you are now living with is not your husband. You're, you're, you're living common law with number six. Now, at, at this point, Jesus has revealed the deepest, darkest secret of this woman. He's, he's revealed her shame. 
And yet he doesn't cash out at this point and say, you know what, you're too far gone for me. I mean, there are just some people I can't help. And, and, and you've, you're so far down the road, sister, that I don't have anything for you. Now, for her part, you know, Jesus raises this issue. And what does she do? She changes the subject. Because she's feeling, I mean, any of us would agree with this. I, I mean, I, I won't get you to, to raise your hands or anything. But I think like a lot of us in this room have things in our past we simply do not want to talk about. Is that fair? There's just some things are in my past. I don't want to talk about those things. It doesn't matter if it's dealt with or not. I just don't feel like I want to talk about those things. And here's this, this woman who's living her life with such deep guilt and shame that, that she's going to the well at a time when no one else is there. She feels socially ostracized from her village. And then this guy that she's having a conversation with, who shouldn't be having a conversation with her anyway, decides to tell her the, the, the deepest, darkest secrets, the most painful things that have ever happened to her. So she changes the subject. They start to talk about worship. They talk about Jewish-Samaritan relations. Because she's ashamed. Now, just before he revealed what he knew about her marital status, so before that even happened, Jesus had actually said to her, because remember, it's, it's just the two of them, and there's a well, and he's thirsty, and he wants her to draw some water. So they're sitting at this well. So they have a little conversation about water. And Jesus said to her, this is verse 14 now, it's John 4, 14. Jesus says this to her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus says this to her, and they have a lot more conversation after this point. But, but I don't think there's any secret about the fact that she didn't fully understand exactly what Jesus was saying. It's not like it automatically all clicked in that he was no longer talking about actual water, but he was talking about something that was going to come from having a relationship with him and believing in him as the Messiah. But she says to him in verse 15, sir, give me this water. I want this water. Because the water I've been drinking, I, I always get thirsty again. And you can see the parallel lines going on here that, that she's not fulfilled in life. She knows it. Somewhere over the course of the conversation, she actually comes to faith in Christ. But what we have to see about how Jesus handles this conversation is so telling for us. What we have to see at this point is that this woman, though she's finding life in Christ, wasn't going to be able to go back and repair all the damage. There's no going back to fix five marriages. I mean, you can fix the one you're currently in. If you're living with the guy, stop living with the guy. Okay, we're going to fix that one. But you can't go back and repair all the damage of, of the past. There's no way to fix that. The relational damage is done. And, and I get forgiveness can be granted. We can get to a place where we forgive. We can, you know, ditch the malice and the bitterness we might have over how those relationships end it. It might even get to a place where there's some reconciliation, a measure of reconciliation. Not that the marriages would come together, but just some reconciliation of some kind. So you could speak well of each other. But, but we're not getting to the place where there's restoration. I mean, how would you even start to rest, restore five marriages? And, 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 and so really, what's done, to use a contemporary expression, what's done is done. What's done is done. But what's curious is Jesus isn't even really super concerned with all of that. It's not even really on his radar as he's speaking to her. He, he just wanted her to stop looking. If I could just say it this way, he wanted her to stop looking for her satisfaction in men. Because that's what she was going after. I mean, for, for you, it might be something different. But for a lot of women, it's men. I just got to find a man who's going to take care of me. I got to be in marriage. That's how I'm going to be fulfilled. And for this woman, that was clearly it. She thought that marriage and men was going to do it for her. And obviously, she had checked out on marriage because now the sixth time she was like, oh, well, that's not working. I'll just stick with the guy part. And he wanted her to stop looking for that and start to find her satisfaction in Christ and get her sights set on eternity rather than this life and to get her mind focused on a new mission as opposed to my mission is to get in a relationship with a guy and feel secure. My new mission is is about Jesus and the, and the eternal kingdom of God. And if you read the entire story in, in John 4, 1 to 42, the latter part of the story, she gets it. 
because she gone right away. She leaves. She gets the living water from Jesus. She believes that he's the Messiah. And off she goes back into the village to the very people that she feels ashamed being around. And she starts telling them about Jesus. Come, come see this guy who told, told me all about myself. And here's what it says. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. They came out to hear Jesus and believed. Now, the point here is simple. The woman's life stands as an example to us that no one, no one, no one is too far gone. And your brokenness is not too broken. All right, Jesus came for the bruised reeds. Your brokenness is not too broken. We're finding hope here. Here's the third one. Your true family is your eternal one and not your earthly one. Well, let's have some controversy this morning. This is awesome, right? Your true family is your eternal one and not your earthly one. See, this, this statement brings incredible hope to those whose family situation is really very badly broken. Okay, so there's lots of people here where your marriage is great and your family, you got your kids all lined up and they're all beautiful. Think about those pictures we saw, the family dedications from last week and all the nice, pretty, perfect families. Okay, but if you don't have that, okay, this is where your hope is found. It, it, this is going to challenge, in fact, well, on the one hand, it's bringing encouragement to people who have a broken family situation or a broken marriage situation. But on the other hand, this is going to be challenging to some people who have actually elevated the family to a priority that God never intended. This is the controversial part. See, a lot of believers have a presupposition that the family is the pinnacle of Christianity. That having the perfect family picture, happy husband, happy wife, beautiful children all lined up, the beautiful family portrait, a lot of people think that's the pinnacle. If I could just achieve that, I'd be fulfilled. It's all about the family. It's all about the Christian family. And it's not unreasonable to say, in fact, that a lot of Christian families have actually made an idol out of the family and worship it instead of the Lord. And ultimately, all an idol is, is that it's just something that I value more than I value Jesus. And it can be anything. And it's often good things. So have we, have we made an idol of the family? Do we value it above the Lord? And, and my evidence for that is, is we just see families often here, right here in the church, Christian families, members of this church who, who put a priority on the family over the church, over Christ, over the mission. That these things over here that we're doing as a family are more important than these things that are related to the mission of Jesus Christ. And they, and they justify that decision by saying, well, it's a family, it's a family, the family's everything. And so some have elevated the family to a level God never intended. You say, well, Todd, that's very interesting. You've been talking for a couple of paragraphs right now. But have you got any proof? Like, I'd like to hear some scripture on that. Luke 8. Right? Jesus spoke right to this. Luke chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. So the, the scene is, like, he's in this, he's in this uh, place with a, a big crowd of people. I think he's in a courtyard or he's in a house or something. And his family needs to come and talk to him about something. Maybe they were concerned about him in some way. But they can't get to him because he's in the midst of this huge throng. So then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. So they're on the out, outside edge of the crowd, and they're like, hey, hey um, I'm Jesus' mom. These are his brothers, and we really need to get a message to him. We really need to see him. Oh, okay, let me just pass over. So, hey, Jesus' mom and brothers are here. Could you tell Jesus? Okay, Jesus' mom and brothers are here. Could you tell Jesus? And it just passes all the way through the crowd until it gets close enough to Jesus, and one of the disciples whispers in Jesus' ear and says, hey, your mom and your brothers are here. This is what Jesus said. He answered them. Okay, he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, I, I, I read this 
And I don't know if, how your ears hear this, but my ears hear, that sounds disrespectful. Does that not sound a little disrespectful? I mean, quite a number of years ago, we have a number of Nigerian families uh, in, in our uh, church family. I think all of them come to first service. Um, but um, so I went to Nigeria and in Nigeria, I mean, mothers are so highly esteemed that when you come into a room and the matriarch of the family is in the room, you bow down, you bow down. How many moms would be in favor of that here in Canada, right? Okay, you bow down. And so I tried to be respectful and kind of learn from what was going on and, and be culturally sensitive to that. So I went down, I got down on my knees and I kind of bowed down and they went, mm, mm, not good enough. It's okay for the girls to get down on their knees in front of the matriarch. But when you're the guy, you're down on your face. Like you're laying down on the floor in front of the mom. It's like, so, so there's such a high respect for moms. I, I, I affirm that and esteem that. But you read this and you kind of go, well, like, like Jesus isn't being very respectful. But I'm sure that no one in this room would accuse Jesus of being disrespectful. Is that fair? None of us are going to do it. So something else is going on here that we're, that we're not seeing at first glance. Because he was completely respectful to his mother, so much so that while he was dying on the cross and he was there before him and, and the apostle John was there, and, and while he was in agony and dying on the cross, he said to John, would you take care of my mom? He was completely respectful. And so what Jesus is saying is something about the priority of family. What he's saying by this is that your true family is your eternal one and not your earthly one. And so, so the, the quirky, complex, dysfunctional family that you're going to spend eternity with is this one. It's this one. It's not your biological one. That's what Jesus is saying. It's those, to use Jesus' words, it's those, my family are the ones who hear the word of God and do it. That's my family. Now, we've been in this family series about how we can, we can do better at our biological family, and God's heart really is still very much that your biological family would be awesome. That, that it would be blessed, that God would do a great thing there, that your marriage would be and your family would be for sure. And so all the things we've talked about in message one, the necessary attitudes, the fruit of the spirit, for sure you need to be living that out in your family. The right way to communicate to, to one another and, and, and love and respect in your marriage and raising kids with character, all these messages we talked about. Handling your finances in a way that honor the Lord. Do all of these things. When there's dysfunction in your home as, as, home, as Pastor Roger talked about last week, deal with that dysfunction biblically. For sure, lock all of that down and have the best earth-based biological family you could possibly have. But don't elevate it to a level that God never intended. Steve Timmis uh, wrote this. It's up on the screen. The relationships that will endure into the new creation are those that are in Christ. No other human relationship exists beyond the grave, not even that of a husband and wife. And some need to sort that out. Some of you need to evaluate whether or not you have put the family in a place that God didn't intend for it. Because it's not, as some have said, it's not, although it's, it's so much fun when it's alliterated, but it's not family first. It isn't. It's Jesus Christ first. It's Jesus Christ first, and then the family is prioritized around that. Now, for those, some of you need to sort that out, but for those here who are locked in something that is other than awesome, this is so encouraging. This, you can literally come out of this message and say, you know, so I only have to be part of and endure the wackiness and stupidity of my biological family on this side of eternity? Yes, correct. You mean the day is coming when I'm going to get to be with my eternal family just as God intends? Yes. You mean that on that day it's finally going to be awesome for me? Yes. In the meantime, I get to be part of Christ's church, the imperfect expression of what's going to go on in eternity. Yes, and that's why we work so hard here. I'm not saying we're even close to the mark. 
but why we're working so hard on uncommon community, why we consider this to be the family of God, why we need to press in and do life together and be engaged in small groups and serving one another out of love, why love needs to be the preeminent characteristic of this group of people. Because if we love one another, Jesus said, the rest of the world's going to look in on that and go, how could people love each other like that? And it becomes a draw for the gospel. This, this here is the family we're spending eternity with. Your true family is your eternal one. And not your earthly one. All right, one more. Your deepest longings are meant to be fulfilled in glory and not on earth. In a lot of ways, this relates back to John chapter 4 and the conversation with the woman. But uh, let's look also at what the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. A great couple of verses here. But in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So, so you're, again, in the family context, your marriage isn't great. You had a breakup. It's hard for you, whatever that is. Um, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith. Now look what he says about faith. More precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. In other words, your marriage is not the top priority. Your children's are not the top priority. Your grandchildren are not the top priority. Anything else in this world is not the top priority. All of it, all of it is perishable. All of those relationships. The thing that's more valuable than all of it, notice in the verse, is your faith. It's your relationship with Jesus Christ. So that the test of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found a result, here it is, in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ when Jesus comes back. In other words, we're getting our focus on Jesus. We're getting our focus on heaven. We're getting our focus on, on glory and we're getting it off of our current circumstances. So I read this, this little book while I was off the last couple of weeks uh, called, I wish, I wish Jesus hadn't said that. I wish Jesus hadn't said that. And he goes through 10 statements of Jesus in the gospels that are all like super controversial. I've already referred to, to, to one of them. And in, in the chapter, Steve Timmis is the author and he's a church planter and pastor in the UK. And he was, he's interacting with some C.S. Lewis stuff that, that he did on pain. In fact, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. And, and this is what Lewis said. There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we've ever desired anything else. Now, what, what Lewis is really getting at is the idea from Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has put eternity in our hearts. God has put eternity in our hearts. In, in other words, as human beings, we're hardwired to be drawn to the eternal, to be drawn to heaven, to be drawn to the divine. That, that we have built into us this desire for fulfillment, something that matters, purpose in life, mission, the meaning of life. We have, we have, we're hardwired to know who we are, what our identity is. And, 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 and everything that we're pursuing in life is really, what Lewis is saying, is, is really a pursuit of heaven. Everything is. That the only thing we really desire is to get to heaven. And then what we do, whether we're religious or irreligious, it doesn't really matter, that every single human being is on a pursuit to find heaven and they're trying to find it in their own way and define it in their own way. And as that relates to the family, for some, ultimate fulfillment is pursued through marriage or it's pursued through having, having kids or having grandkids. It's having family legacy. It's having an awesome home. And so when you do a family series like this, and I talk to some singles, you do a family series like this and some singles get wigged out about it because, because they feel like they're being left out of the conversation. And of all places on planet earth where single people should feel fulfilled and welcomed and loved and a part of it, it's in the church of Jesus Christ. Because every single believer should understand and know that marriage isn't the ultimate fulfillment. 
First, first Corinthians chapter seven. In fact, the apostle Paul talks about singleness and esteems it so highly because marriage isn't the thing, but in our culture, we've made it such a thing. Or, 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 or childless couples feel so unfulfilled and, and, and because they, they, they can't have a child of their own. And we hold up the example of, well, you know, if, once you have kids, you're going to feel so fulfilled. And, and then grandkids come along and they're better than your kids. <laughs> and we think that all of these things are going to f- be ful- you know, find fulfillment for us. And the reality is you can have a great marriage and have great kids and have great grandkids and all of that and live a long life. And at the end of your life, still feel unfulfilled. Because none of those things are going to do it. Because we're trying to reach for heaven. And so if you aim for those things, they're not going to get you there. Here's the way Steve Timmons said it. Often, uh, we want things that are objectively good, like health, marriage, family, peace, and satisfaction. All of those things are good things. And you should, you should want those things. But when we demand these things in order to feel happy, we are bound to be disappointed. They cannot live up to our longing because our longing is for heaven. And you can only be satisfied by Christ Jesus and fulfilled in our heavenly home. So aim for Jesus. Make him the center of your marriage. Make him the center of your life. Make him the center of your home. Devote your life to him. Make him the chief end. Make make your life, in fact, the chief end of your life is, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever and have that as your aim and your goal. And if you do, God may bless you by, by throwing a great marriage your way or, or throwing some wonderful kids or giving you some grandkids. And that's all just residual blessing that flow out of a fulfillment that's found in Christ. So God may throw an awesome home your way and receive it as a gift from him. C.S. Lewis, just kind of like close to the final word here on this. All the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of it. Tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. But if it should really become manifest, if, if there ever came an echo that did not die away but swelled into the sound itself, you would know it. Beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. And, and, and it's only Jesus. It's heaven. Your deepest longings are meant to be fulfilled in glory and not on earth. And even if God blesses you with glimpses and tastes of it on earth, don't be confused by that. Don't let it stop you. The real and ultimate glory is with him and Jesus Christ and not in your family. God's plan for your home to be awesome. Listen now, God's plan for your home to be awesome begins and ends with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. Pastor Roger, you want to come and join me up here? Thank you, thank you. How's it going? Great. All right, so we got a few questions here, and essentially I'm going to, I'll ask them and you answer them. (laughs) Okay. Is that good? Everybody in favor of that? Yeah, I am. Okay, so what if I, and we, we've merged, we got a, a bunch of questions and we merged some t- t- together and all of that, but what, here's, here's the first one. Um, what if I want my home to be awesome, but my spouse is not a Christ follower, or is, but isn't fully on board? Okay. Go. Wow. Well, you got, you, first we have to acknowledge that's a challenge, right? And so uh, 
That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, don't be unequally yoked together uh, because you're not going to be on the same page. And so when you're not on the same page, it just gets more difficult. Everything is more difficult. And uh, particularly if, uh, if you're trying to mingle your soul uh, with a dead person and a live person, that's not going to go well. That's going to create all kinds of difficulty. But you can have that inequality in a lot of different areas. So you can have two believers and one's just not really committed to living uh, for Christ and so um, that's going to create some tensions. You're going to have some different values, different approaches. And so uh, that, uh, that, that just uh, becomes a, a very difficult way to navigate because it comes down to, to very practical things like um, um, how much media are we going to allow our kids? Usually it comes into the parenting issues. Or uh, on a personal level, how involved are we going to be in the church community? And so all of those things become... Um, more difficult, but the the key is uh, the most the primary relationship that you have is with God, and uh, it, it just makes my mind go back to the the uh, John chapter four, where Jesus promised this woman, uh, the Holy Spirit will be in you, a well of water springing up into everlasting life, and you can still live for for Jesus Christ in a hard situation where you're not together, where there's an inequality. You. Uh, for your part, can live for Jesus Christ and be uh, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, we talked about in that uh, first um, message, the ne- having the necessary attitudes, being filled with the Spirit. You can still respond that way uh, in those situations. And it's not easy. Um, in parenting, there's going to be times where uh, you may have to uh, uh, refuse certain things in your home, but you need to know when to pick those battles. Right? Um, it may be important to you to say grace before your meals, but maybe, maybe in your home you give that up. It's such a, a, a controversy. It's such a, a, a problem. It's just like nothing but creating nothing but, but uh, anger and frustration. And so maybe you give that, that up. But there's some things you can't give up, like, like you can't tolerate uh, pornography in your home. And so uh, knowing, praying, and asking God when to know uh, uh, which, which of those things you need to really hold the line on and which maybe you need to let go. And it's not going to be ideal, right? Because if, if you were on the same page, it would be ideal uh, for the most part. But getting on the same page. Let me say this. Um, that marriage is the second most important relationship in that. Your relationship with Christ is first. But the marriage relationship is important. And if it's not going to all fall into complete disarray, you have to learn to cooperate together. Whether one's saved and one's not saved, whether one wants to live for Jesus and one doesn't, you still have to have a mature way of communicating and problem solving to actually dwell together. Yeah, and like, isn't that kind of sensible? Mm-hmm. You have to do that. If you're going to live with people, you've got to do that. And so there's some, some things in there. But... Um, well, also, uh, just thinking that the, the scriptures are clear about, like in First Peter 3, first six verses talks to the wives, but I think it applies to both, that if you're in that unequal situation where it's a believer, unbeliever, that that believer living out the necessary attitudes actually becomes like a witness to the unsaved spouse and is living Christ before them. And, and so you have to have that mindset of, I'm also trying to win my spouse mm-hmm. by not being... Um, you know, overbearing or forcing my way or preaching all the time. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think this is where one of the challenges come for us. When you start to touch on, you know, some of the challenges that, that we have with parenting, if we take it into that situation. And, um, you know, I think sometimes we argue the moral side of things as Christians first. But let's all agree that on an issue like unfettered access to the internet with our kids. Let's just all agree that whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, that's just a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And so let's approach some of these conversations with an unbelieving spouse. Let's approach it from a practical standpoint or a mental health standpoint or a physical safety standpoint, because you can have the argument about unfettered access without ever bringing in the moral issues because kids are at risk. And, and if you're a parent here and your kids have unfettered access to the internet, stop it. Stop it. In the most forceful terms I can tell you, get a handle on that. Whether you're two believers or a believer, unbeliever, or two unbelievers, protect your kids. And there's lots of ways that, that you can get after that. Yeah. So communication is the key, really, talking it through. Is. Yeah. All right. Let's um, do this second question. And this one was really uh, directed, I think, a little bit more 
toward me and specific things I said in, in a couple of messages. So during Pastor Todd's message on building a strong marriage, he gave several examples of how a wife can show respect for her husband. But when it came to the husband showing love to the wife, the only example he mentioned was to carry the burdens of life. Well, I just didn't want Cheryl to get any ideas. <laughs> so could you please elaborate? No. All right. Second, second question. So my husband and I have been tackling life by splitting the load. Pastor Todd preached about the husband carrying the load. How do you achieve this? What are some examples of ways in which he can carry the load for me? Okay, so seriously, now I will answer it. But, uh, you know, it comes down again to the communication thing that, that you need to be talking and working these things out. But one of the things that I, that I used to do when I did premarital counseling um, with young couples is we, we do this exercise called Great Expectations. And we'd send the guy off with, I don't know, it was like 30 questions. We'd send the, the, gir- the girl off with 30 questions. And they would answer the same questions about what their expect- expectations are in the marriage. Like, who's going to do what? And then I would tell them, now you get together, just the two of you, and you review each other's answers. And then, and then we'll review that when you come together for your next session. And the next session, I always was dealing with couples who had fought with each other. <laughs> Be- because, to, you know, to, to use a, a really classic kind of... Um, uh, you know, traditional roles kind of example, the guy's like, he's, he's thinking he's, he's, you know, shacking up with his mom. So his laundry's going to get done and his, <laughs> his, his, uh, the meals are always going to be prepared and she's going to do all the housework. I mean, that's what he's thinking. And, and she, and she's like, well, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to share the cooking and, and we're going to do the dishes together. And maybe, you know, we'll do every other week on the laundry or something. And I mean, he's never even seen the washing machine. <laughs> And so they're having a little battle over, over those expectations. And, and, and what it really comes down to, because there's no way to kind of work this out for every single person in this room. Every couple's going to be a little bit different on all of this. But it's about communicating and actually asking the question, man, this is what I would say about carrying, you know, the chief weight of the burden of life for your wife is you have to actually know what that is with your wife. And the only way you're going to know what that is is if you actually ask her the question. You say, well, I've never asked my wife that question. And so you have no idea what kind of burden she's carrying. And if you've been married for 20 years or 25 or 30 years, you've never asked that question, this afternoon is going to be a great time to ask it. How can I better carry the load for you? And, and I could think about some general things like, like for the most part, I'll speak in general terms. For the most part, the, the, the man needs to be the principal breadwinner, bringing in you know, the, the lion's share of the income. If, if, in most cases, that's going to be true. In most cases, he's going to carry the weight of the financial responsibility beyond just bringing the income in, but managing it. And if the wife is better at doing books, that's fine. That can happen. But don't leave that all on her to make every decision, to pay every bill, to carry the weight and burden of all of that. You need to make those decisions together and carry the weight of that. As a general rule and principle, most women are looking for security in their marriage. And, and if you're not providing that, then you're not carrying the, the chief weight of the burden of life for her. And so you really have to you know, play that out. When you're early, early in our marriage, I would come home at the end of the day. I worked at a, a church and um, I, w- I would come in at the end of the day, five o'clock, I'm, you know, 515, I'm coming through the door. And Cheryl was like meeting me at the door going out. The three kids are inside and she's going out for a walk. She has no plan, no agenda. She's just leaving me with the kids. Okay. That's the kind of day she had. Right. So now I'm, so I can't be like, Hey, 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 back here. Okay? I need to let her go. I'm going to let her have a little decompression time, and then I'm going to go in. And then after supper, we'd, you know, we'd have a meal together. And, and, um, and then I would, I would say to her, like every night I'd say to her, do you want me to do the dishes, or do you want me to, to bath and, and jam me up the kids? And every single night, 100% of the time, she said, bath and jammies, bath and jammies. <laughs> bath and jammies. I'm doing the dishes alone. Take the kids off my hands, right? And, and so that... That I was just helping to bear it. And men, you just can't be thinking that she's going to do all of the inside. We have basically an inside-outside thing with the house. And I, I care for the mechanics of the house. And when I say that, what I mean is I hire people to care. <laughs> That's what I mean by that. So, but I bear that. I, I make the phone call. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, so like you just got to work that out uh, on your own and what, what really works for you guys. But I, I know my way around the kitchen. I can make a meal. I can help unload the dishwasher. I, I can set the table. I can do all these things um, if need be. And, and men, you need to be in that place where you're helping to share that burden and that load with, you, with your wife.
Okay, that's yeah. good. Yeah, I, th- right. I think First Peter three seven just speaks to that. Know your wife. No, because uh, every every lady's different. But what what is the burden in her life that she needs help carrying? It? And uh, just uh, really caring for her spirit, I think, is the key to that. And so, <clears> guys, even even particularly in spiritual realm, you know, my wife knows more about the Bible because she goes to Bible studies every single week. That's okay. But uh, leading in uh, leading in prayer. Uh, taking the lead in that, saying, hey, honey, we're going to pray about this. Um, praying every day, uh, being engaged in worship uh, with her. Those are some ways to bear, bear the load there. So. All right, here, a couple more. Um, are there any uh, resources, suggestions for step-parents or second marriages that only have kids for a small amount of time compared to other non-believing parents? And then a second, uh, I don't even think there's a question in this second one. It's really just a, a statement. But my challenge is with my wife's children from her first marriage. I've been married before to a woman who also had children from her first marriage. The problems that arise are numerous. What I found is that when marrying a woman with children, no matter if the children are grown, there are two families, you and your wife and her and her children. And I'd like to hear a message on that. How about a, an answer? We'll get, okay. <laughs> rather than a well, whole message. Um, the problems that arise are numerous. <laughs> that's, yeah. I think that's a given. And so, you know, blended families are, are such a unique uh, challenge. And, and there's just more and more and more and more and more of them in our yeah. society. So a guy named Ron Deal has written a lot about step families. Uh, he's got a couple of books out. He's actually got a lot of books out. One is The Smart Step Family. And I would just encourage you, you need to read up on, on things like this. Uh, he's got a great one out. It's gold called Dating and the Single Parent. Uh, because lots of uh, parents find themselves single again. And you just need to know some things and open your eyes going into the next one um, that, uh, that uh, uh, he helps with. And so there's lots of special challenges. Again, it comes back down to uh, you have to recognize that you don't have as much uh, control as you might have if you're uh, two parents in the same home. You just need to recognize. So a couple of things about step families that I think are even address what's uh, uh, listed there is the marriage relationship has to be the primary relationship in the home again. And uh, the children hang off of that. And so you've got to somehow find a way to make that the priority. That's the relationship. And everything hangs off that. Now, it's hard because the kids aren't just hanging off your relationship. They're hanging off some other relationship. Or they might even be hanging off an absent relationship. But they're hanging off it. And so those kids are swinging in the wind. And it's hard for them. And you need to understand how hard it is for stepchildren. But uh, the key primary relationship is your relationship. You've got to get that uh, settled and strengthened and come to terms with that. And then you've just got to come to terms with the fact that uh, you, you don't have as much control and you're going to have to put up with some things. And, and it's hard when your family is trying to hold the line and the other family has like way lower, uh, lower standards for whatever. And, and if, if I was a kid, where would I want to go? I want to go where it's easy, where I can get anything I want. That's where I want to go. And so you're going to have that tension, and it's just really hard to hold the line. And you have to hold the line. Because I think one of the key things to recognize is we're going for the long haul here. We're going for the long term. And one day, like right now, your kids have no marbles. And they just need, they they have to love everybody. And uh, they, they can't make choices like you want them to between you and them. And they don't ask them to do that. They don't have any marbles. But one day, listen, here's where you're going for it. Uh, one day they're going to have all their own marbles and they're going to be making their own decisions. And when they are, uh, they're going to choose to have a relationship with the person who was consistent and loved them and was, was open and honest with them. And Co- didn't, showing the necessary didn't, attitudes that we've Showing the about. necessary attitudes, yeah. yeah. The fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. All right, final so question. I hope that's helpful. Basically, you've got to get into those resources. Like a, like a three-minute answer to that question is really just about pointing in a direction, right? Because there's a lot to that. What are some suggestions on how to continue to parent and influence our adult children who aren't following Christ? Wow. You know, that's, uh, the, your, your, your job in so many ways is done there. I think we need to recognize that our, our relationship with our children changes over time when they become adults. Um, you, you are now a consultant. You know, you were, before you were, had a lot of control, and then you became a coach, and now you're a consultant. A consultant has a lot to say and absolutely no power. Just to be clear, an unpaid consultant. An unpaid yeah, consultant. Right. Well, actually, you pay for the privilege. It's, well, it's probably correct, you're correct. still... Actually, you like, are still... Yeah. In and out yeah. there. And so the, the key to remember is you, you still have influence. And, and I think it's so important uh, to recognize that your, your child's choices are their choices. 
and uh, you don't control them anymore. And you can damage your relationship by insisting that they, they uh, live according to your standards. And I, I just think that that's, that's, that's wrong for good or ill. They've made their choices and are, are making their choices. And you can still love them. And uh, Todd mentioned that somebody said, your kid doesn't lie in bed wondering um, whether you agree with their choices. Uh, they know whether you agree with their choices or not. What they wonder about is, do you still love me? And your adult children still need to know that you love them. And all through their lives, your kids need to know, honey, I love you. And if you're really great, I'm not going to love you more. Uh, And if you screw it up, I'm not going to love you less. I love you because uh, we have relationship. And I, I am like God. I love you because I am loving. And I love you. I've set my love on you. And, and uh, I will continue to love you no matter what. Uh, your behavior, my, be- my, my love is not conditional on your behavior. Right. And your child needs to know that. Your adult child needs to know that you love them. And, and you can do that. You don't have to agree with everything they do. You can have standards in your home, and they probably know your standards better than you, and will right. respect them probably more than you do. And so, uh, you know, there's tensions and there's challenges, but I would just say you, you always have influence. Um, use it really carefully. And again, it comes back to, again, necessary attitudes, just um, your, your, living your life. Your children don't need perfect parents. They need real parents. Yeah. And if, you're truly, if you truly possess a relationship with Jesus Christ, if, if you are truly filled with the Holy Spirit and living in the power of the Holy Spirit, then that is going to show and that's going to be a greater influence uh, than any, uh, anything you can say um, no wisdom that you can impart to them is going to be as, as great as a real relationship with Jesus Christ that shows in your life. Amen. That's good. Um, and again, I, I don't think you've heard echoes of it throughout, but you, we can't overemphasize enough that the first message in this series was foundational to everything else, cultivating those, those necessary attitudes and having the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, no matter what our circumstances are, is really super, super critical. So, Roger, we have a couple of parenting events, three parenting events coming up, so just refresh our memory about yeah, that. Yeah, just in this, in this area of uh, the family, <clears throat> parenting is so important, and so we want to bring some extra resources. So Thursday, March 7th, we're having a dessert night. You really need to register for that uh, so we can know how many are coming. We're calling it Parenting with Purpose, and it's really the why. Uh, why do we parent and, and uh, some of that? And then two Saturdays, March 30th and April 6th, uh, Saturday mornings. And this is really focusing on the how. It's, uh, they're called At My House, Practical Tips for Parenting. And we're going to have um, on uh, March 30th, we're going to be talking about parenting teens and grandkids. And then on April 6th, parenting preschoolers and grade schoolers. And we just want to give you very practical. Often that comes out of a conversation where often we tell parents what you can't do. Um, but we never tell them what they can do. And we just want to offer you some very practical tips of what you can do as parents in, uh, in this tough time to, mm-hmm. to be parents, honestly. And so we just want to help with those. So. And then you said Pastor, you and Pastor Duane are working on a love and respect marriage group coming up in the f- sometime. Yeah, yeah. Um, love and respect or, or another curriculum. We're working together to put that uh, together. Um, so, so if somebody's interested, they can just go, again, go to the, to the website, the FAM, lots of resources there, videos, books, articles, um, uh, retreats that are coming up, conferences and all of that. It's just one-stop shopping for everything related to the family. And then let us know at the office, if you're interested in a marriage group, just let us know and we'll add you to the list and let you know when it comes. And um, so this has been hopefully a good series that has blessed you. Again, all the messages from the rest of the series are all are, are all on that website, and you can catch up on those. All right? Uh, today's service was brought to you by Fiji Water. And if you... Um, <laughs> if, you if you want prayer for anything, um, representatives of Fiji Water will be up here at the front. <laughs> no, uh, some of our leaders are going to be up here at the front right now, and we'd love to pray with you as this service concludes. And if you are new to Harvest uh, today or in the last several weeks, stop by Guest Central. I'd love to meet you and put a coffee card in your hand. So God bless you. You are loved.